This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're learning about Elizabeth Bowen's The Heat of the Day with writer and academic Jessica Gildersley. Published in 1949, The Heat of the Day tells the story of Stella Rodney, a divorcee living in London, in the dying days of the Blitz. When she's informed by a mysterious man called Harrison that her partner, Robert, is selling state secrets to the Nazis, she is cast in the role of unwilling spy. In his review, Burgess writes that this outline sounds simplistic, but the novel, with its economy and sharp, elegant writing, suggests answers to the human predicament expressed in exactly chosen symbols. Elizabeth Bone was born in Dublin in 1899. She began her career as a writer in 1923 with Encounters, a book of short stories. Her novels include The Last September, The House in Paris and The Death of the Heart. During the war, she worked at the Ministry of Information, reporting on the opinions of Irish citizens about their nation's neutrality. She died in 1973. Jessica Gildersleeve is Associate Professor of English Literature at the University of Southern Queensland. Her books include two on Elizabeth Bowen, Elizabeth Bowen and the Writing of Trauma, The Ethics of Survival, and Elizabeth Bowen, Theory, Thought and Things. Her other work on women's wartime writing in Britain and Australia includes studies of Rosamund Lehman, Rose Macaulay, Virginia Woolf, Jean Rhys and Eleanor Dark. Her latest book is Screening the Gothic in Australia and New Zealand, Contemporary Antipodean Film and Television. It's out now from Amsterdam University Press. For all the relevant links and for a list of books mentioned, check out the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation and I spoke to Jessica Gildersleeve in July 2022. Jessica, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, today we're talking about The Heat of the Day by Elizabeth Bowen, which is a a very, very interesting novel and uh, one that's quite different from a lot of the novels Burgess has chosen on the list. Um, but first, we, we like to, to uh, find out how you discovered the novel. Um, so how, do, how did you discover the novel and, and what did you first make of it? Hi, Graham, and thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. So I first discovered The Heat of the Day um, and Elizabeth Bowen more generally. At the end of my undergraduate study, um, I did an honours project on interwar British women writers, and that included Bowen. And when I did that, I saw a need for more research on Bowen, and so that was why I pursued that for my PhD, which ultimately became my book, Elizabeth Bowen and the Writing of Trauma. And that was the point 
I read The Heat of the Day during my PhD when I was already really immersed in Bowen. Uh, and so I didn't come to it cold. Um, I didn't come to it not knowing much about Bowen. Um, it was one of the last of her works, I think, that I read. Um, and I maybe for that reason, it's probably one of my favourites. I think I was able to appreciate it more um, than perhaps I would have done if I'd read it earlier. Um, for me, it's both typical and atypical of Bowen's work. There's actually a really long gap between The Heat of the Day and its immediate precursor, The Death of the Heart, which was published in 1938. Uh, the Death of the Heart is probably her most famous novel, uh, perhaps because it was produced at what we really might see as the pinnacle of her career. But The Heat of the Day wasn't published until 1949, 11 years later. So there's a really long gap there. Um, and Bowen herself says that this was because of the war, that she found it hard to concentrate on the long form of the novel during that time. And she really preferred the short story as a form uh, in, during the World War period. Uh, and she wrote two successful collections during that time, including uh, what is probably her most famous short story, The Demon Lover, which you can easily find online. I suggest that um, anyone who's interested go and read that one. Um, she also wrote two memoirs during the war, Bowen's Court, which was about her ancestral home in County Cork, Ireland, uh, and Seven Winters, which is about her childhood in Dublin. And I point all this out to say that the heat of the day comes at a strange point in Bowen's life and career. It's almost, I might say, a kind of growing up. So whereas the earlier works had all typically dealt with younger protagonists, and Bowen herself was fairly young in writing them, uh, The Heat of the Day feels to me quite grown up. Uh, not only is it rather sombre in its depiction of a terrifying cultural moment, it's very sophisticated in its kind of noir atmosphere. Uh, I always feel in reading it that everyone's very chic, um, kind of always elegantly smoking, always a subtle lamplight in the corner. Um, it... It seems to me a very, um, a very much more sophisticated, uh, more controlled kind of narrative, perhaps than her earlier work. That's a, a a really good description of the novel. It does feel like an adult novel in in terms of the sort of gravity of of what it's dealing with. It the the sort of big themes with with sort of real stakes almost in the in the mm. novel, and that that it's definitely not sort of frivolous it's it's a really serious novel why do you think Burgess chose the heat of the day for his 99 novels and, and not one of Elizabeth Bowen's other books that's an interesting question and I think that uh in 1984 when when Burgess wrote um, his 99 novels Bowen was really seen as one of the greats of British literature and the novel The Heat of the Day was then and still now seen as one of the best about the Second World War so I'd say that's why he chose it for his list perhaps not because it's Bowen's best novel um, although you know as I said earlier it's probably her most sophisticated um, but because it represents a significant moment in time, um, that period just after the Blitz, the heart of the war, the heat of the day, the heat of the war, it's very specific about that and it does all that so powerfully. I think uh, the, the depiction of the war is, is extremely sort of visceral in the novel, if that's the right word. It, it's uh, a deceptively complex novel and, and very densely written. And, and Burgess points out the the intense and credible detail that's a quote from Burgess's review can you tell us 
what the novel is about and what we should be looking for when we first read it. Because I think a lot of people picking up the book, certainly the first couple of chapters, uh, for me, I, I came to the heat of the day. It's the first Elizabeth Bowen that I'd ever read. And even down to the sentence structure, it was a, a shock to the system. It, it it really sort of takes an effort to to get into the rhythms of Elizabeth Bowen and, and the, the way she actually expresses her her story on, on the page. Um, so can you tell us what the novel's about and, and what we should be looking for when we when we first read it? It can be quite hard to describe a Bowen novel uh, because her work is, as you say, so much about style and not just about its plot. Um, one of the most divisive aspects of The Heat of the Day is its very jarring syntax. Um, and for many first readers then and still today, this can be a bit off-putting. Um, but at the same time, uh, she was always a very popular writer um, and Hermione Lee makes a really astute observation that although Virginia Woolf, to whom Bowen's often compared, was the better writer and thinker, that Bowen was the better novelist and I think that's true. She's got a stronger sense of story and she's more generous to the reader uh, in, in what she gives and what she entertains us with. Um, in terms of that jarring syntax, Bowen did that on purpose in The Heat of the Day, and it's much more exaggerated in this work than it is in her others, even though it does exist in her other works too. Uh, she's trying to put language to a new use here and to represent the strange and disruptive times of the World War II period. And it's as if through that jarring language, we are experiencing the jolts and the explosions and the uncertainty of the wartime period. Um, in terms of the plot, there are essentially two parallel threads to the plot. The introductory scene is one of only two in which both strands of that of the novel's plot intersect, um, and the other one occurs uh, when Harrison and Stella un unexpectedly meet Louis in a cafe later. So the novel opens um, on that very specific date, the first um, Sunday of the summer in 1942, um, Louis Lewis is part of a crowd listening to a Viennese orchestra in Regent's Park's open-air theatre, and her neighbour in the audience is who we come to find out is the counter-spy, Harrison. And Harrison forms the hinge of the novel's doubled plot, um, those parallel stories of Louis Lewis and Stella Rodney. After the concert, Harrison goes to Stella's flat. Stella is a divorced woman in her mid-40s. She's living alone in London and working for a mysterious government agency. And Harrison tells her at this point the information on which the whole story turns, that Stella's lover, Robert Kelway, is passing secret information to the enemy. But, he says, if Stella becomes his lover, uh, he will refrain from reporting Robert to his superiors. Uh, so he's blackmailing her. Um, and the way that that happens is is so subtle. It can sometimes take a few reads to actually work out what is happening. Um, Stella responds to Harrison's revelation um, neither one way nor the other, but her suspicion has been has been planted and she doesn't tell her lover about Harrison's visit, rather beginning to watch him herself and noting his habits and behaviour and even suggesting a visit to his family home, which is called Home Dean. And she actually says to Harrison, you succeed in making a spy of me. Uh, eventually, Stella confronts Robert um, and during a lengthy discussion at her flat, he confesses. 
uh, he's convinced that he's being watched and will be arrested if he's seen leaving her home. And so he escapes through a skylight, um, but he either falls or leaps, um, the novel says, from the roof to his death. So we don't know if he fell or if he committed suicide. Uh, so that's probably the most dramatic part of the of the narrative, that end. And so then running parallel to Stella's plot is that of her working class counterpart, Louis, who's left alone in London after her parents are killed by a bomb and her husband, Tom, is called up. Louis is quite a strange woman. She's very lonely. um, And because of that, she's uh, developed this habit of attaching herself to strangers and become quite promiscuous. Uh, By the novel's conclusion, she's given birth to an illegitimate son and she names him Thomas Victor, which is Another strange thing to do, it's a combination of the name of her husband, who is not the child's father, and Stella's ex-husband. Uh, it's it's kind of unclear why, why she would do that, why she would attach him to um, this history that she has no connection to. Um, perhaps that's another comment on the way that the war has kind of disrupted our sense of connection to the past. Um, it's been said by one critic, uh, Renee Hoogland, that the heat of the day turns on psychology rather than plot. So what we're looking for when we're reading this book, I think, is the psychological impacts of war on these people and the impacts they have on each other. So, for example, why has Stella never revealed that she wasn't actually the guilty party in her divorce from her husband? Um, why does Robert become a double agent? Bowen is interested in those kinds of questions about why people do the things they do and especially interested in tracking the reverberations of trauma throughout wartime and across the first part of the 20th century more generally. Um, A couple of other things we might look out for, there's a lot of doubling um, as part of the novel's commentary on double agents, double dealing, being two-faced. Stella and Louis are kind of paired. Harrison and Kelway, who are actually both named Robert, are paired. Um, And of course, Stella is kind of deciding between them, deciding who's telling the truth. Their name, Robert, is also echoed in Stella's son, who is called Roderick Rodney, um, and Louis Lewis as well, these strange kind of doubled names. Um, There are two houses that are sort of paired together, Home Dean and Mount Morris. Uh, Everything has its sort of ghostly echo throughout this book, and we're never quite sure what is real and what is fictitious. Um, And that's uh, kind of a thematic commentary I think on on the way the war has made everything suspicious everything is uncertain we don't know what is truth anymore Um, and as part of that as well we might observe themes about secrecy um, and inheritance the inheritance of secrets too Um, there's a lot going on in this book um, and so many layers one of the criticisms of the book sometimes is that uh, characters like Uh, Harrison and Kelway are quite flat Um, but I think that Bowen is actually doing that on purpose uh, as part of this display of their secrecy that Stella only knows one side of them and is never privy to another side and therefore we cannot be either. I think that's a a brilliant description of the novel and and the what you say about the the characters there it it struck me that every single character you don't get a fully rounded character because every single character is hiding something or, you know, um, every conversation in the book. And it's a book largely made up of conversations. Um, Every conversation is, is two people talking to each other, trying not to 
sort of reveal everything in this conversation. So the conversations are often very strange and foggy sort of things when you're reading them because everybody's playing this game. And I, I think that's that's a, a a really odd thing about the novel. Yes, and that's probably why it takes those, um, you know, reading a paragraph a couple of times to say, hang on, what is that person actually saying here? What are they, they're saying one thing, but they mean another. Um, and it's that uh, sense of trying to figure out the deceptions and the truth that the characters are also dealing with between each other. Yeah, especially Stella as well, who who is this sort of stately, very glamorous woman who, who you sort of imagine if you were looking at her, you just couldn't get a read on her at all. You know, she's one of those yes. sort of very, very elegant people that that doesn't sort of let anything go. It's an amazing characterization in a way, a very controlled characterization. Mm, yes, controlled and very polished. Yes, you, you see she's all she's all surface there is so much going on and I think we probably get a greater sense of that with Stella than anybody else but still not not a complete characterization because she doesn't admit to things perhaps even to herself um, and there's an interesting description of Harrison as well that he ha- it has a face with a gate behind it um, and he also has this interesting physical uh, quirk where his eyes are not quite even so um, Bowen says it's as if he's looking at you twice uh, and Robert Kelway has a limp, so his uh, his walk is kind of um, off kilter as well. Uh, so nothing is nothing is seamless. Everything is kind of dragging this echo behind it. And it, and his limp sort of comes and goes, doesn't it? She says yes. it, it's worse sometimes, and then it gets better, and it's never consistent. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's making it up. Yeah. And he forgets that he's supposed to be limping. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but um I mean one thing you mentioned, you mentioned the word noir there, and on the back of my copy, um, the Los Angeles Times says it's probably the most intelligent noir ever written. And it, it's mm. often called a, a spy novel as well. Uh, I mean the, these are words that that sort of indicate that it's gonna be a certain sort of novel but do you do you think these are accurate descriptions and and do you think it defies the convention of of genre of of spy fiction or of noir fiction I actually do think this is an accurate description and it's probably the only one of Bowen's novels which could be described according to a popular genre like this, Um, although the same isn't true of her short stories. Um, Many of those are ghost stories so I think she's much more interested in genre there. Um, Even even her works where there is romance, um, I don't think you would call them a love story ever. Um, so I think this is the closest to genre as Bowen comes. Um, perhaps the way it does complicate the conventions of spy fiction is in Stella's reluctance to be a spy. Uh, but perhaps the novel suggesting that in these strange times we are really all spies or called upon to be spies because no one can be trusted uh, in that sense, it's also not unlike Golden Age detective fiction, which in the years following the First World War, um, suspicion around the loyalties of others was really heightened and only exacerbated during and after World War II. Um, and we see that a great deal in Agatha Christie's works, for example. Um, the other way it doesn't quite meet the criteria of a spy novel is that it doesn't really contain high action scenes um, except for that final fall or leap of um, Kelway. Its action really is psychological rather than physical 
Um, so maybe we can call it a spy novel for intellectuals. Okay. Yeah, and even even the the moment of action that sort of happens off the page, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You, you and and it's not a big reveal. It, it's sort of there's doubt all around it. You know, did he jump or or did he fall? And mm-hmm. you don't really. There's no sort of defining sort of climax of the action. It's sort of mud, muddied slightly. One other thing that that you can't avoid when talking about this novel is the war. It's set at the tail end of the Blitz, but how does it differ from traditional war novels? How is war presented in the novel? I'm not sure I can define what a traditional war novel is. Um, Much war literature is poetry, um, a genre which is much more easily lent to the fragmented nature of warfare. Most of the war literature I've examined is women's wartime writing, and it's specifically defined as wartime writing rather than war writing because um, those writers or characters were not themselves engaged in warfare. But a novel like The Heat of the Day, set, as you say, in the aftermath of the Blitz, reminds us that even civilians became engaged in war um, at this time. Uh, Plus, of course, Stella Harrison and Robert are all also actually conducting wartime work in different forms, um, some of which we don't really know what they're actually doing. Sometimes we get a bit of a hint of it. Um, So perhaps this is a wartime novel that's also a war novel. Uh, In terms of how war is presented, I think it's true of all Bowen's work that war is considered to be resumed, um, an ongoing effect rather than something that's begun. In Bowen's Court, uh, that memoir that she also wrote during the Second World War period, she writes that war is not an accident, it is an outcome. One cannot look back too far to ask of what. And in the heat of the day, um, Harrison makes the similar observation that war, if you come to think of it, hasn't started anything that wasn't there already. Um, So as an example of um, the way that war is just kind of an ongoing effect. There's a really important moment in the novel where a bomb strikes, just as Stella and Robert are having dinner in a restaurant early in their relationship, and they're both about to say something significant. Um, Would you mind if I read that brief passage? No, please. Uh, It says, She returned to Robert, both having caught a breath, they fixed their eyes expectantly on each other's lips, both waited, Both spoke at once, unheard. Now down a shaft of anticipating silence, the bomb swung whistling. With the shock of detonation still to be heard, four walls of in here yorked in, then bellied out. Bottles danced on glass. A distortion ran through the view. The detonation dulled off into the cataracting roar of a split building. Direct hit, somewhere else. It was the demolition of an entire moment. He and she stood at attention till the glissade stopped. What they had both been saying, or been on the point of saying, neither of them ever now were to know. Most first words have the nature of being trifling. Theirs, from having been lost, began to have the significance of a lost clue. Uh, And I'll just say there as well that that description of, of the bomb hitting and the way that the walls go in and then out is just the most fantastically physical description I think I've ever read of, of a bomb hitting. Um, and really, you can see in that in that one paragraph those syntactical uh, shifts, which 
put the effects um, at the end of each sentence so that we're always kind of in this moment of delay and then hit and delay and then hit in the way that you're waiting for a bomb and then it hits. Um, But that scene I read is really powerful for our understanding of the war because it suggests the way that its violence steals moments from us, it steals life from us, it steals time from us, but also the way that there isn't really a centre to the battle. Uh, War is everywhere. It's even when you're trying to have a romantic dinner with your partner um, and it's ongoing. It's not happening somewhere else. It's happening right here at home. So... um, The Heat of the Day, then, I think, is a war novel about, as I said, wartime and about the way that war invades ordinary domestic life. I think that's a a brilliant answer. And actually, that's uh, uh, what I was sort of getting at with that question was quite a few of the 99 novels are about the Second World War in some way, which you would probably expect from someone of Burgess's generation who, who was enlisted into the army uh, during the war and it was a formative moment for him even though he never sort of fought um, he was in the education corps so but um, it was a formative moment for him so you can imagine that reading about the the second world war is a sort sort of catharsis for Burgess but um, what I mean by a traditional war novel I think probably something like Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead which is also one of the 99 novels which is um, a very male uh, experience, uh, you know, war as a uh, something that happens to men, and war that that uh, is is really about soldiers and and the the sort of waste of life on the battlefield. Whereas what what you've you've described there, I think it does show that the heat of the day is, is tackling war um, from a very very different point of view, and it. I, I think the novel sort of slots into to the other novels on the list um, in creating a sort of over, overview, a big picture of, of what the Second World War uh, was to Burgess. And I, I think it, it plays a vital role in that because I think it's one of the only ones that is really a, a, a novel that's set on the home front um, and uh, about that sort of domestic impact of war. Yes, while while still engaging with um with a sense of wartime work rather than someone like Rosamund Lehman who writes about kind of that escape from London um and being stuck in the countryside with these children that she's worried about. Um or even Henry Green, um, to which sometimes the heat of the day is compared, uh that that's much more about action, I think, about the, you know, recovery from bombs and trying to find people and working as an air aid warden and working in the ambulances. So um, I think this is more more every day, perhaps, of life in London during that time. Sure. And I, I think um, having mentioned London, uh, this novel is set in London, largely set in London and largely about London during the war. But one thing that that I wanted to ask, do you think it's a a sort of Irish book in a way? What is the significance of Bowen's Irish identity when we're we're reading this story? Uh, I don't know if we've said this at at this point, that Bowen was Anglo-Irish. And so she always had this, uh, what she called a hyphenated identity um, and felt that she really uh, lived somewhere in between 
England and Ireland. Um, During the war, she conducted a kind of spy work herself. Uh, The English Ministry of Defence recruited a number of Anglo-Irish citizens, so people who had a legitimate reason to be in Ireland or to travel to Ireland, and they wanted them to gather information and report back on the climate, they said, of neutral Ireland. They were really concerned that Ireland might decide to take sides um, and to ally themselves with Nazi Germany. Uh, For that reason, they wanted to gather information on what the general population thought and felt about the war, uh, what was being said in gossip or casual conversation or on street corners, and the job of Bowen and others like her was to report back on that. One of the really interesting things I noticed in reading those reports, um, which only became available fairly recently, um, is that Bowen uses a metaphor of infection to describe Irish feeling about the war. She says, I believe that with many people in air, there is a nebulous feeling that war is infectious. The more belligerents accumulate in the six counties, the more likely it is that the germ will spread. War, in fact, is not entered but caught or picked up, just as passively and unwillingly one catches or picks up measles. I think that's a really um, nice quotation for us to think about in the present time as well. Um, But perhaps that feeling was general to other supposedly neutral nations during the war. Certainly the United States' entry to the war, I think, could be described as reluctant. Um, But what this means, I think, is that this perpetual English fear of what Ireland is going to do and what Ireland is really thinking, uh, that echoes the behaviour between characters in the novel as well. You know, you never know what somebody else is thinking. Um, But also that Ireland becomes a kind of haunting presence, I think, for the English in the novel, a threat of colonialism perhaps coming back to bite. Um, You know, what are the consequences of our past behaviour? And now um, that is returned. That's really interesting. Ireland does appear in the novel as well. Um, uh, Stella's son inherits a house in Ireland and and it, it becomes a sort of feature in in opposition to London really um but one of one of the things that's also unavoidable it's a novel ab- about war about the effects of war um it's a novel largely about London um it's also a novel about women I mean the two women who we've described earlier Louis and Stella Louis is a young working class woman. Stella's in her forties and and is divorced and has sort of had this a lot of experience of of other people and and living in London and and being self sufficient and that sort of thing. Uh, but what what does the novel have to say about the role of women on the home front during the Second World War? Um, and w- what's the thematic relationship between? Louis and Stella, because they they originally come from very different places, but but they are entwined by the end of the novel. So whereas, as I mentioned a moment ago, the work of someone like Rosamund Lehman or Elizabeth Taylor is interested in the wartime experience of mothers, Bowen, I think, like um, her literary mentor, Rose McCauley, is more interested in the experience of single, independent women who work outside of the home. Um, Stella is a mother, but this isn't a significant part of her identity. Um, And in any case, her son Roderick is grown up and himself a soldier. Um, And Louis becomes a mother at the novel's end, but we have to wonder what kind of parent she will be. 
Um, in some ways, Louis and Stella remind me of Cecilia and Emmeline, um, the sisters-in-law who feature in her earlier novel, To the North, uh, two very different women who are kind of bound together by circumstance um, and wouldn't be friends or connected in in any other for any other reason or in any other circumstance. But, um, you know, the war has kind of brought them together uh, in this unusual way. Um, and into the north too, we have, um, like in the heat of the day, we have one woman who is more traditional and stable, if um, kind of emotionally flawed, um, and another one who is really quite damaged, um, flighty, engaging in risky behaviour. Uh, and I think parallels like this, like the one in the heat of the day and into the north show the limitations available in roles for women at the time. So even as the war was allowing changes in gender roles and a more general sense of independence, there were still the expectations and prejudices of and against women like Stella and Louis, and they're forced to operate within them. Um, Bowen herself was a gentrified woman, um, and she does sometimes show that class prejudice, but unlike many other writers, she does write about women from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, and I think that this relationship between Stella and Louis is an effort to explore the effects of the war on, on a range of different um, experiences for women. We mentioned before that the, the novel, the characters in the novel are, are sort of glamorous in that 1940s way. And the, a lot of the novel is sort of conversations between two or more characters and it, it struck me when I was reading it as a, a work of of cinematic fiction it, you know I, I pictured sort of those black and white 1940s films things like Brief Encounter and that sort of thing the sort of glamorous uh, hats and and raincoats and and dresses and that sort of thing um, it struck me as a novel in that in that world and many of the scenarios seem to be influenced by the cinema of the 1930s and 40s. Um, what was Bowen's relationship with film? And, and did she uh, look to film as inspiration to her fiction? Yeah, she she definitely did. Um, in an essay called Notes on Writing a Novel, which she also wrote during the war, she makes a direct link between cinematic devices and novelistic devices. And she says that for both the director and the author, um, they're concerned to fully realise a subject, um, but also to emphasise plot. Um, but in the heat of the day, perhaps more than in any of her other works, she uses cinematic metaphors to emphasise falseness or fictitiousness. Um, and for this reason, they're primarily associated with Robert Kelway. Um, so, for example, um, there's a scene when they're in the lounge at his family home, Home Dean, um, and the house is described as having the glossy thinness of celluloid, and Robert himself looks like a young man in technicolour, um, and Stella also wonders if he is fictitious. Um, and at this moment, there's a kind of freeze frame of him. Um, he has his thumb on his lighter um, and he's frozen in time. And she says um, it's, he's stilled in the same way that in the cinema, some breakdown of projection leaves one shot frozen absurdly onto the screen. And this is the moment that all Stella's illusions about him are destroyed. Um, and so it, it's certainly not a coincidence, nothing in Bowen is a coincidence, that uh, that she's using cinematic metaphors to describe uh, to describe Robert here, that he is performing a role, essentially. 
Um, and interesting lo- interestingly, though, in The Death of the Heart, the cinema, um, actually sitting in the cinema and watching a film, um, is the scene of a significant betrayal. Um, so I think that she's starting to explore um, that metaphor of falseness a little bit earlier as well, but it really comes to the fore in The Heat of the Day. You know, th- this book is crying out for a, a, a really sort of high budget film being made out of it, a really sort of adult, intelligent film made out of it. We've talked a lot about the the heat of the day, but but in general, uh, looking at the the sort of state of literature now, what do you think the legacy of Elizabeth Bowen is, and and do you see her influence in any writers working today? I think it would be very hard for anyone to live up to her legacy. Um, her stylistic works are so unique. Um, but I think her influence is evident in a writer like Sarah Waters. Uh, in particular, her novel The Night Watch really seems to me to pay homage to the heat of the day, um, to the experience of those long nights of the Blitz, as well as the strangeness of London during those years. Um, but I was really racking my brains and I cannot think of anybody else that I would compare to Bowen apart from Sarah Waters. And and even in saying that, I think Sarah Waters is a fantastic novelist and she's certainly not derivative. I think there is um, just a genuine kind of appreciation for the heat of the day in The Night Watch. Um, but she's really the only one I can think of. Yeah, I mean, she, judging from the heat of the day, it's quite a singular voice in, in the novel. It's not, like nothing I've ever read before as we've we've been saying all the way through it's it's a a complex novel but it's also a tremendously subtle novel I think you said earlier that that you've got to read it again and again to to sort of pick up on some of those subtleties that is quite a hard thing to to um see as a, a sort of influence in other writers I think moving away from Elizabeth Bone we we ask everybody this final question if you could choose a hundredth book to round out Burgess's list, what would it be and why? I mentioned before that I think Burgess chose The Heat of the Day, not because it's Bowen's best novel, but because it's representative of a, of a particular cultural moment. Um, so with that in mind, I, I'd have a few suggestions for this hundredth book. Um Perhaps, and then there were none, which I think is Agatha Christie's finest detective story and so representative of that golden age of detective fiction. Or maybe Stephen King's The Shining for what it does for horror in the 80s. Or maybe Jean Reese's Wide Cigar So See, which is so innovative in its intertextuality. Um, but then I thought that for the purpose of this podcast, I'd suggest to you my favourite novel by my other favourite author, Christos Cholkus, who is a contemporary Australian writer um, and another uh, author on whom I've produced a great deal of work. Um, his first novel, Loaded, which was published in 1995, is a brilliant novel which describes one day and night in the life of 19-year-old Ari, who is a young, gay, Greek-Australian living in the suburbs of Melbourne. The novel tracks him as he moves his way around the city, always listening to music on his headphones, engaging in frequent casual sex and drug use, and thinking honestly and provocatively about his identity in 90s Australia. One of the most famous lines is when he says, I'm not Greek, I'm not Australian, I'm not anything. Uh, It's a really powerful, energetic and modernist influenced novel. 
Uh, so um, listeners to this podcast might enjoy that modernist influence. Uh, it was also made into a film by Anna Kokonos titled Head On and starring Alex Dimitriades, and I highly recommend that film too. I should also say that um, The Heat of the Day was adapted to film um, by Harold Pinter, um, and I do own it, but I've never been able to watch it because I only have it on VHS and I can't find a VHS player. Um, but uh, Anglo-Irish Bowen, Greek-Australian Shulkus, they are my two favourites and I would recommend anything by either of those writers. Uh, that, that's a, a great choice. I think Australian fiction is, is something that gets neglected in, in this country, in the UK, um, probably unfairly. Uh, we, we tend to, tend to uh, uh, you know, read people like Peter Carey um, but really, a Neville shoot. A Neville shoot appears in ninety nine novels. Um, I think he's the only Australian that appears in ninety nine novels. So, any suggestions of Australian writers is is really good, <laughs> as far <laughs> as we're concerned. Um, thanks, Jessica, for joining us on the ninety nine novels podcast. Uh, it's been really fascinating to talk about Elizabeth Bowen. It's it's a really fascinating book. It's uh, it's a book that that is difficult in places but uh very very worth the time it takes to to go through it so thanks for joining us and thanks for for shedding some light on on elizabeth bowen you're welcome and thank you very much for having me you've been listening to 99 novels a podcast by the international anthony burgess foundation Jessica Gildersleeve's latest book, Screening the Gothic in Australia and New Zealand, Contemporary Antipodean Film and Television, is available now from Amsterdam University Press. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?